Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon, Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, keep your Bibles open, please. Uh, But identity is pretty important, isn't it? Your identity, my identity. Um, Those of you who know, um, we're going to be having probably identical twins uh, come January. Um, and my wife is an, pretty much an identical twin. She's, it's not genetic. She's, they, they haven't done the test to show that um, genes are exactly the same. But to look at her and her sister, uh, they look exactly the same. Um, if, if Becca, were, Becca walked in right this moment, you'd all say, hello, Hannah. And she'd say, I'm Becca. Um, so it's confusing, isn't it? I remember the first time at Christmas when I saw Becca... Um, I was there for Christmas, for the first family Christmas. She walked in uh, to the front room and I was just... I, I probably did the mouth open thing, you know. <laughs> of course, because I love the way that Hannah looks anyway. But, um, you know, but I also, I was just like, it's so weird. She just looks like Hannah, she sounds like Hannah. It's Hannah. And I had to listen to her for a good five minutes to realise that it wasn't Hannah. And I'd been with Hannah, her boyfriend, for six months. And I had to do that for five minutes to check. Identity is pretty important. And getting it right is pretty important, isn't it? Imagine if I got that identity wrong. And getting Jesus' identity right is pretty important. We've been seeing, haven't we, that the disciples have started to see Jesus' true identity. That is that he is the Messiah, as promised in the scriptures. But there's still so much they need to understand about what that actually means. So, for example, last week we saw that his kingdom is bigger, far bigger in scope than they really realised. He was both the Messiah, their Messiah, who came first to Israel, but whose invitation and rule extends 
throughout the world. So that was a surprise. That was something they needed to get their head around. In this next section, Jesus clarifies what being the Messiah will mean for his mission and for those who follow him. So if you look at your sheets, I've given you three points under who do you say that I am. I've said what this means for you, Peter, what this means for me, and what it therefore means to follow me. So we're just going straight forward. Those are the three things that Jesus is going to say about what being the Messiah means for you, Peter, for me, and for what it means, therefore means to follow him. In this next section, he clarifies what being the Messiah means for those who follow him. The big surprise is that it involves, for Jesus, humiliation and death. That's the big surprise before glory. He says, doesn't he, in that verse, um, verse 13, who is the son of man? Who do they say, people say, that the son of man is? And we've heard, haven't we, there's been plenty of people who thought he was John the Baptist risen from the dead, and that he was one of the prophets, Elijah, perhaps, Jeremiah, all the prophets, because they saw his mighty works. They heard his, what he was saying was from God, and so they just thought he was another prophet. And then Jesus, uh, Son of Man is actually Jesus' way of referring to himself. Uh, We see that, don't we, by the second time he asks it in verse 16, uh, verse 15, sorry. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? So the Son of Man, first time, means that it's Jesus. He's talking about himself. He's asking Peter, who do you say that I am? And notice it's gone from being a a question about the general opinion about Jesus to being a personal question. So the first time is, what, does, what, does, what do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Uh, but now it's, who do you say that I am? Uh, so this is a really important thing, that there's a personal decision that needs to be made. And Jesus is actually showing them that the need to decide for themselves, rather than just going on popular opinion, or what the crowd say. Every man, every woman has to decide for themselves. Who do you say that Jesus is? So it's a pretty big question. It's a question for all of us. Who do you say that Jesus is? And this is Peter's big moment. He is the first one in this gospel, and of the disciples at least, to say, you are the Christ, the promised one, the son of the living God. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus affirms that um, declaration, doesn't he? So he says, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is saying that this, is, this revelation has come from heaven, not from earth. It's not something that so-and-so said to you and didn't come from flesh and blood. It didn't, wasn't taught to him by his mum and dad, something that he, he realised because it had been revealed by heaven. him so jesus is affirming it he's saying yes this is true this is who i am now now that they're clear on jesus's identity jesus can start to explain what it means and what it will involve and that's our next uh three that's our three points isn't it what this means for you peter in verses 18 to 20 what this will mean for me in verse 21 
and what it therefore means to follow me in verses 22 to 28. Now that they're clear on Jesus' identity, Jesus can begin to show them what it involves. What being the Messiah involves. What he's going to do. It's as if Jesus' plans actually move into overdrive. Sort of from this moment on, you sort of think, God, there's so much that Jesus is saying about what he's going to do and where he's going to go and what's going to happen to him. It's almost like he says, you've got that bit, great. Now let me tell you what being the Messiah will mean for you, Peter, for me, and for following me. So first up then, in verses 18 to 20, what this means for you, Peter. Let's read that. In verses 18 to 20. Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus says that he started a building project, and Peter is the one, Peter's confession is going to be what he starts building his church from. He uses the the word rock because Peter's name, Petrus, is similar to the word for rock. And he says, on this confession about who I am, I'm going to build my church. You notice it's his building project. He says that I will build it, and it's my church. And um, he says this little bit about the keys of the kingdom and what binding and loosing, you know, uh, Uh, in heaven and on earth. And because this has been really quite widely mistaught and misapplied, it's brought quite a lot of confusion to the Bible and the church. It's worth saying what it doesn't mean. So uh, Jesus says in verse 19, he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's pretty specific. He says it's of Peter... I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and wherever you bind on earth, you shall be bound in heaven. Interestingly, in chapter 18, uh, he's going to say that of the disciples, so the apostles as a group. Um, I think it's in 18 and 18. He says that. Yeah. Um, So it's pretty specific. And the keys of the kingdom is the entry into the kingdom. And in their gospel, what they were saying about Jesus, the confession that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, that gospel would establish people for eternity or it would keep them out of the kingdom because they rejected it. So the gospel is what they're proclaiming and that's the job of loosening and tightening and bringing people into the kingdom or keeping them out. But just notice, actually, it says... Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It suggests that they do the, the job of, they do their bit and then heaven just rubber stamps it. It's actually, it actually says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven already. So anything that you do is actually going to be, and anyone who responds to you is the people who have already been established and, and called in heaven. So it can't mean what the Roman Catholic Church thinks it means, which is that every pope that came after Peter had the job, had sort of like the authority to say which bit of scripture was authoritative or not, and that it would change, and that that kind of thing has been passed down through Peter. So so actually the, the, 
The Roman Catholic Church would say um, the Pope's authority goes alongside the Bible and he gets to say whether those commands apply for today or not um, and whether that bit of the Bible is to be, it means what it says um, and how it relates to today is, is just, it's just a wrong misunderstanding. It's a, it's a misunderstanding. So, but Peter and his confession and the confession of the disciples are going to be the, the basis for the church and G- that Jesus is going to build and it's his church those who receive that gospel will be in the kingdom um, so that's, that's what it means for Peter and if you're Peter standing there you're probably thinking wow you know that's huge isn't it Jesus has just said you, on this confession Peter I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to withstand it. Meaning, anyone Jesus decides to snatch from he- hell for heaven, through your witness, hell will not be able to guard against it. Their gates are hopeless against that gospel, against Jesus who wants to save. So that's what it means for Peter. But we're getting, in, getting into verse 21. Um, and this is the bulk of what we're going to look at. What does it mean for Jesus that he is the Messiah? Well, we see that it means his rejection, his suffering, and his death. Jesus uh, plugs in the the sat-nav, the destination he's headed to, and it's Jerusalem. Now, the destination should ring a few bells, because there was a group of people who came from Jerusalem back in chapter 15 at the start. What did they ask Jesus? What did they say of Jesus and his disciples? Should we have a look? Chapter 15, uh, verse 1. Did someone read that? Verse 1 and verse 2. Verona, would you read that? Okay, um, Verona, yeah, that's great. Verona, would you read um, verse 12 of that chapter? Yeah. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? So the disciples have a measure already of the kind of reception they're going to get in Jerusalem. This bunch of people, religious leaders, have come purposely from Jerusalem to say to Jesus, your disciples are breaking the traditions of the elders. And when they leave, they're even more furious than when they came. They are not happy with Jesus. And so the disciples knew what it meant when Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem. In, in that verse, 16 verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. If that is where Jesus is headed, it's not going to end well. But Jesus doesn't leave them in any doubt about how it's going to end up. He says in verse 21, He began to show them that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. So what this means for me, Peter, and the disciples, is 
I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be put to death. Have you ever wondered why Peter responded the way he did? Well, we do know that Peter loved Jesus. So we sort of assume it's out of concern for Jesus. But what Jesus goes on to say in verses 24 onwards gives us a clue to what Peter may have been thinking. Jesus speaks in those verses of the cost and yet great gain of following him. So why would Jesus follow that up just after Peter's said, no, Lord, this can never happen to you? It would seem that Peter had begun to understand that if Jesus is to be rejected, then he is to be rejected too. If Jesus says that, Peter, I'm going to build my church around your confession and what you say about me, then Peter knows that if Jesus is going to be rejected and killed, then there's going to be suffering ahead for him. You can imagine him taking just a few quiet moments off to one side to himself. Just thinking about that. As the realisation sets in, I've given up everything to follow Jesus. And now I realise what it's going to cost. In fact, Jesus had already told them about that in chapter 10. That they would be rejected, they would suffer. Peter is concerned, he doesn't want Jesus to do it. And it might seem like a, you know, our reaction as well, wouldn't we? We'd be like, we can understand Peter saying that. That's pretty reasonable. He's thinking clearly. Well, read Jesus' response in verse 23. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on things of man. Jesus shows just how far off the mark Peter is. Jesus' rebuke is very strong indeed, isn't it? He says... Of Peter, who he's just said that on the confession that Jesus is the Christ, on that rock I'm going to build my church, Jesus now says in this verse, you are the stumbling block, Peter. You're trying to trip me up. Satan is actually behind your words. And what you are trying to do, get me off course, is actually his work. It shows, doesn't it, just how intrinsic to God's plan the cross is. It's unavoidable. Jesus must go and suffer and die. Why? Why did he have to go to the cross? Well, it seems to be that that was the main thing the Messiah was coming to do, uh, to suffer and die. And there's a verse, isn't there? Jesus says, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give up my life as a ransom for many. Jesus came so that he would give his life as a ransom for, to save us. A ransom for what? Well, a ransom for sin. A ransom for us in terms of our punishment that we deserved. Jesus has to die. That's what he came to do. What Jesus speaks of here and what he went on to do in Jerusalem, as we know, is nothing less than give up his unblemished life for our sinful lives. A swap. He took the cross so that those who have that salvation and know him do not have to face God's judgment. That's a pretty big deal. Um, You might know that animal sacrifice is a big deal in many religions today. 
Um, in fact, this is the weekend where uh, m- like millions of people are sacrificing animals um, in the second largest Muslim festival called Eid al-Adha. Uh, the practice is to slaughter a goat or a lamb or a cow. I know this because my brother Farah at the back there has been serving up you know, hundreds of pounds of meat um, for people on the Heathway. Um, well, people enjoy the time with family, don't they? But the tragedy is that behind that belief and that idea is that we make a sacrifice to show our obedience to God. Yeah? We make a sacrifice by killing the animal because that's believed to be what Abraham was doing in terms of his obedience to God. And so we show our obedience to God by making a sacrifice. You know, in Abraham, who provided the sacrifice? Who who provided the sacrifice on the hilltop? God. Isaac was meant to be on on the altar. God provided the lamb. So it's God that provides the sacrifice... And it's Jesus' obedience that makes us right with God, not our own obedience. That's That's the picture we have of our sin and our utter helplessness to provide our own offering. We just can't do it. And yet, I guess, in our proud rebellion, we turn sacrifice into back, back into something we do to earn God's approval. That's not what it's about. It's about God providing the sacrifice for sinners we are too much like Peter aren't we we think in our own cleverness we'll do it our way we can, we can do it our way God and yet thinking we can pay off our wrongdoings is foolishness well we know that Jesus did die so we are in a different position to the, to the disciples here Jesus has said these things are going to happen Um, And actually, Matthew is writing to people who knew that everything that Jesus said would happen, happened. Because they come later. They're believers who are are reading back um, the accounts that we read here. Jesus did die. We'll come to it soon in Matthew's Gospel, in his accounts. He went to Jerusalem. He suffered many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes. And he was killed. On a cross. Uh, so all of that has been proven. What Jesus said had to happen, did happen. So that we can be forgiven. They had even more proof, didn't they, the people reading this, that the way of Jesus is the way of the cross. Because people reading this and us today know that Jesus did go to the cross. On top of that, they saw the persecution that the apostles in the early church faced. Um, So that leads us on to our final point. If I'm the Messiah, Peter, what does that mean for, what does that therefore mean to follow me? What does it therefore mean to follow me? And I think that's what really has hit home for Peter. What does it therefore mean to follow Jesus? If his way is the way of the cross, that he is to be rejected... What does that mean for me? Uh, What it means to follow me in verses 22 to 28. Um, So let's read these um, together. And Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. 
But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. What it means to follow me? Well, it's there in verse 24. Jesus' call is this. Do you want to follow Jesus? He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. (laughs) It's pretty stark, isn't it? If anyone would follow me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus' call is there in that verse, and you'll notice that the next three verses start with the word for. 25, for whoever. 26, for what will it profit? And 27, for the Son of Man is going to come. These are Jesus' three reasons why even though the cost is high, um, they're worth it. It's worth it. Let's read the first one in verse 25. For whoever would save their life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He said this back in chapter 10, verse 39, pretty much exactly the same as that. And the contrast is of someone trying to save their life or being willing to lose it. Um, And it can be described as grasping at yourself or rejecting yourself. Okay? Grasping at me or rejecting myself. And a rejection of self is what it means to follow Jesus because it's to acknowledge what he says about our desperate state. There's nothing good in us and nothing that we can do. So it is to abandon all hope in myself. Whoever would lose his life, whoever would reject himself for my sake, will find life. Um, It's not purely metaphorical, is it? Because Jesus, in both cases, has just spoken of the threat of suffering that's ahead for him and for them. But those who see the true worth of knowing Jesus... And what that means, they know that it's worth giving up everything else for. So there's a guy called Jim Elliott, um, who was a, one of five missionaries killed um, in Operation Orca. It was an attempt to evangelise the Huarani people of Ecuador. I've got that completely wrong. He memorably put it this way. He said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, i.e. everything, (laughs) can't keep hold of that, to gain what he cannot lose, eternal life. Maybe that's something that we should put on our fridge or our phone or something this week. Uh, Just to remind us of the infinite, incomparable gain of knowing Jesus and his salvation. 
Um, the second reason in verse 26 is it reinforces the first. Um, it's that he, Jesus asked two questions. He says, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? The answer to the second question, what can a man give in return for his life? Well, it's surely nothing, isn't it? You can't give anything. There's nothing that a man can give in exchange for his life. And therefore, it won't profit him to gain even the whole world and yet still face God's judgment in the end. We know that uh, judgment is Jesus' line of logic because of the third reason. So look at verse 27. This is the third reason. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he's done. The Son of Man, that's the second time he's used that name in this section, referring to himself. I'm going to come with his angels, uh, with my angels, in the glory of my Father. And I will repay each person according to what he's done. Um, Jesus talked of his angels back in chapter 13, uh, or coming with his angels, um, in verse 41 of chapter 13. He said, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it is about judgment. When Jesus says the Son of Man is going to come with his angels, that's about judgment. And we know that, don't we? Because it says that he will repay each person according to what he has done. That doesn't mean that he's going to weigh up the scales and see how many good deeds and how many bad deeds. It means that he's going to see whether you've, how you've responded to him. What have you, have you responded to his offer of salvation? Um, and that, that will be the reckoning. So that's the third thing. Third reason why actually, even if it costs you everything, Jesus is worth it. And actually, everything else is nothing in comparison to what he's giving you or what he's done for you. Um, let's have a quick think about what this will mean for us. Um, so if you're listening in, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. I guess what feels like the safest option when it comes to Jesus is to just go by what others say about him. That feels like the safest option, doesn't it? The present consensus on Jesus, well, it hasn't actually moved far from Jesus' time. People are still happy to acknowledge him as yet one more religious figure, figure, but nothing more than that. And yet we've seen, haven't we, that Jesus doesn't leave us that luxury. He tells us who he is. He says to know him as Christ, the son of the living God, is a revelation from the throne of God itself. What's more, Jesus' predictions about his death, which are crucial to his mission, were fulfilled, every single one. He rose after three days. No man can do that. He rose from the grave. And we've just heard him say that when he returns, his glory will be like that of his father. There's no higher claim to be God himself, is there? The glory that you see when Jesus returns will be that of his father. This is God himself. Which all explains... What Jesus says about his judgment, that he's going to be the one to 
to give us um, heaven or hell, depending on what we make of him. So though the common, common view look, feels the safest, doesn't it? It will end in disaster. Don't go with the flow. Go with what Jesus says. Don't go with the flow. Go with what Jesus says. If you're used to being in church, you may still never have been told what Jesus says here about being his follower, his disciple. About counting the cost of that. What does it mean to follow him? You have to give up everything. You have to abandon yourself. Stop trusting in yourself and and abandon yourself. For some, that seems too high a price. Everything. But if it feels too high a price, it means we've not really grasped the seriousness of our sin. Or we haven't grasped the great length that Jesus had to go to for us to save sinners for hell, from hell. Because we don't see the incomparably great gain of knowing Jesus. If we think it's too high a price, we haven't grasped the seriousness of our sin or the great length Jesus had to go to for sinners. We haven't seen the incomparably great gain of knowing him. Interestingly, Jesus puts this discussion or this choice in terms of financial terms, doesn't he? And so he says, uh, what would it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his life? He's done this before in Matthew's Gospel. In chapter 13, verses 44 to 45, he talked about the pearl and the treasure. The pearl of great price, the treasure. That the man gives everything, sells everything to have. At the word profit, my guess is that Judas's ears pricked up. Now, we don't talk about money very often in our church, but let me just say that if Jesus isn't our greatest treasure, our money is where it's going to show. And if, we, if what we have we hold on to, and the thought of how it might be used so that others might hear of Jesus and his soul-saving work never really crosses our mind, then it might be, it's not that we need to start giving in order to be a Christian. To follow Jesus. It would be that we have to go to him admitting that we haven't been, we didn't follow him in the first place. So that will be where it shows. Um, and that would be a really good thing to go away and have a think, you know, to, to really say, God, where's my heart? Do I love m- money? Or do I treasure Jesus? What does it show about what I think is the greatest treasure. Because I think that's where you'll find it. Jesus is talking in terms of profit here, isn't he? Um, and yet, often our hearts show us what we really think is, is priceless or important. If you are following Jesus, um, like Peter, you have been given the insurance that Jesus is building his church and how is not going to be able to resist his advances through you, through us, through the church, to save people for his own. With the fierce opposition you encounter in doing that, how are you going to stand firm? What's going to encourage you? What's going to keep you going? In the very last verse, which is verse 28, you'll see it says this. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here 
who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then read 17 verse 1. And after six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves and he was transfigured before them. That, sec- that verse 28 is, is bringing it closer in terms of Jesus' glory. They're gonna, there are some standing here, some of the disciples who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The thing that will keep us standing firm, trusting Jesus, confident in him, even in the face of opposition, is those, that confirm, confirmation about his glory. In, the, in this next section, we're going to look at this next week, they, they get three huge confirmations about Jesus. They see his, his unveiled glory. They meet two of the people the, of the covenants, don't they? The, the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah. And they're with Jesus. Confirmation that this is exactly what God promised. Jesus is the, is the God of the Old Testament. And they'll hear the Father's voice from heaven telling them that Jesus is his son whom they are to listen to. So even if Jesus is saying something which they think, can this ever really happen? Jesus dying? Can that be part of God's plan? That doesn't sound like it's a, it's a great idea. The Father's voice says, this is my son, listen to him. So we need those same confirmations from God. We need to keep coming back to see that Jesus is the one with unmeasured glory to be revealed, like it is here. And um, he is the one who all the scriptures speak about. And he is the son of the father. And that gives us confidence, doesn't it, that even in the midst of opposition, that this is the one we need to point people to. We need that clear vision of the future to look beyond what we see so that we can live and give everything to serve Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we are often too busy thinking of our present situation and this life to realise our deepest need. We set our hearts on what will profit us now, not realising that we'll rightly face your judgement when you return. Thank you that Jesus, you came and you set your face to Jerusalem even though you knew full well what it would cost you. Thank you that you willingly gave your life for mine and yet now live forever so that we might share eternity with you. We want to follow you, whatever it takes. There's nothing we have in this world that compares to knowing you. Help us to live flat out for others to know you too. Amen.